0: happy guy Then he ate a molded pumpkin pie then he thought that he just couldn't die so then he laughed so all Hey there, this is Chris, your steward for today's ride along the colorful roadway of endurance sport. And practically, practically speaking, this makes for three podcasts in three weeks for you from the Run Run Live headquarters, located in a dank cave in western Pennsylvania that at one point in its history housed bandits, velociraptors, and coal miners. Just kidding, I'm actually in my home office. I did have a trip to Denver but it got, it got canceled. Episodes 313, 314, and 315 should be in your inbox, slightly out of order due to a disruption in the space-time chance and luck continuum. So I seem to remember closing out episode 4-314 with the note that I intended to run a half marathon in Plymouth. And by the way, I'm recording on my screened-in porch here, so you hear birds and wildlife and stuff in the in the background this is where I store all my mountain bike equipment all my bicycle stuff so that would be two weeks ago now and I indeed did go down and run this half marathon first actual race for me since the heart procedure so my main goal as is my practice now was to not die and also to have fun My top concern was that I might pull something or otherwise hurt myself, given that I have not been doing much road work since Boston. And coming off of Boston having run like 830s, I figured something in that range would be easy enough. And on the top end, if I felt good, maybe sub-8s would not displease the running gods. So I told Coach not to give me uh, any taper for the race. Just treat it like a long tempo run. And I kept a nice training load right up to the race. I did a bike and a hard swim the day before. And then a bunch of us from my club got up early, break of dawn, and drove down to Plymouth, Mass, to run this half marathon. Brian had looked at the course map and said the first half was flat to downhill with a big long hill at mile six and then rolling hills into the into the finish and this was a first year race but there were still there were close to 2,000 runners and the first mile was a bit jammed up but I broke free and I was feeling good enough and spinning out those downs and flats going a bit too fast like I'm wont to do and I had my garment on but I wasn't looking at it just running chatting up the pretty girls thanking the volunteers having fun and looking at the data now, those first five miles were in the uh, in the 720-ish range, and that's a bit fast right now for me with no taper, no training, and a wonky heart. So I knew it was uh, non-sustainable going into the hills. And my heart rate was good, nice, nice four, four to five, average level, but not flipping out in the 180, 198 fib indicated uh, range. So my heart was hanging in there really well and i was running maybe you know maybe 85 80 85% of uh, of race uh, effort for a race this long and there was a water stop at mile 6 with porta potties so i pulled over stopped to have a rest and i reset my pace a bit and there was a mile plus hill from mile 6 through the 10k and all the way through 7 miles And it turns out this wasn't the only one. What Brian had called rolling hills was a set of long, steep hills over the last 10K that must have really beat up the back of the Packers. So I just geared down and and worked the hills, and I gave back some time, but I didn't suffer too much, and my legs weren't all that peppy from the lack of taper. I came in, uh, according to the timing chip, right on 8-minute miles, and looking at the data, my heart rate, which is the important part my heart rate stayed in bounds for the most part so i'm gonna call that a win right (laughs) i mean i could worry myself by remembering that i was trying to break a 130 half and uh that i ran a 320 something uh boston four years ago but that's another season of life i feel like i'm in for a good run now pun intended we're done with the Happy to see the warm sun part of summer up here and into the hot, sticky, horsefly-infested part of summer. And I was down in Atlanta last week when they were having a mini heat wave. It was like, I don't know, 100 degrees or something. And I got up in the morning to run, and it was awful. It was like pea soup. There was no oxygen in the air, and I ended up coming back to the hotel soaked like I had been swimming, which uh, which is a pain in the butt because then I had to pack up and get to work and first what you have to do is you rinse out your wet stuff in the sink to remove some of the toxic man juice and then you roll them up in a couple towels and walk on them to get some of the the wetness out of them and then you put them in a plastic bag and you pack them and this worked okay except my hokas were sweat soaked too so I put them in a plastic bag and packed them but I forgot about them in my in my suitcase my travel bag until tuesday this week so i was like five days in a plastic bag and that was a horrible thing to have to put on those still wet festering shoes to go for a run on tuesday ew and the other thing is you just don't stop stop sweating i want to go to work but i can't stop sweating long enough to put my suit on and then after that uh, tuesday run i was soaked again of course because it's hot up here now and even though I exercised my rule of thumb that you can run shirtless under one of two conditions: first, you have an attractive body or two you're over fifty and When I got home, I put those clothes directly into the washing machine as a form of hazmat isolation, but I didn't run it because i didn't I, I wanted to wait till the morning when I could actually hang them up outside uh, after they were washed. And my daughter then decides to do some laundry. And she finds the wet clothes in the washing machine and decides that they must have been washed and throws them in the dryer. These are my domestic adventures. Very fascinating. Today we have an interview with Gary Allen, who we have talked to before in version one or two of the podcast many years ago. Gary is the race director of the Mount Desert Island Marathon. But more relevant is that Gary is a bit of a Historian for the local marathon scene, having been involved at a near elite level for many years and still involved. And I'm hoping it comes off as two old guys talking passionately about their sport and not two old guys bitching at the kids to get off the lawn. In section one, I will continue my series of how to start running from scratch with a piece on how to build your support team and. What you'll need as you start to progress through that process. In section two, I'll pull some nuggets from a book I read last week called Happy is the New Healthy, 31 Ways to Relax and Enjoy Life Now. I had a person I was interviewing at some point this month recently ask me a question. And you know you know how it goes in an interview, right? Where at the end I smile and I say, do you have any questions for me? And they asked, are you happy? And I think the question was actually, are you happy in your choice to work for this company? Are you happy at the company? And I answered the question the way it was asked. I said, well, first of all, I'm happy because I choose to be happy. And my happiness has nothing to do with where I work or, or what I do or who I work for. And of course, Your environment does influence your emotions, and I get pissed off at work situations like everybody else, and I get blindsided by irrational people. I have to deal with idiocy on the same scale as everyone else, but I try to remember that those are environmental things, and really only affect my happiness if I let them. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Building a support network for new runners. Who should you know? Who should you trust? Well, it's all about who you know and the relationships you build in life, right? If you want to start running, the same holds true. Most of us have to learn these lessons through trial and error as we navigate the waters of a new sport. But there is a helpful team you can start building now when you start to be your guides and pilots through the stormier channels. They say if you want to start a business, you need to find an accountant and a lawyer that are not only competent, but that you can trust. Who are the equivalent resources for running? First, you need to build a support crew from the people who are already in your life. And I'm going to start close at home. Start with the support or lack of support team that you live and work and play with. Begin to build a network of like-minded individuals to share your journey with. And unfortunately, be prepared to build Defense systems against those who will try to get you to stop. So, who are these people? Well, first and foremost, they're your direct family. When you finally reach that point that you want to start running as a lifestyle choice, you're going to, by necessity, have to let your family in on the secret. And they may or may not be supportive, but you have to try. It may be a gr- great shared experience where your spouse and your kids all celebrate the birth of a new you. And if that's the case, Look for ways to include them in your journey as either direct participants or cheerleaders. There's nothing better than having a loved one cheering you from the crowd or offering a hug at the 20-mile mark. On the other side of the spectrum, they may see your decision to start running as an indictment of their own lifestyle or an attack on the status quo. They may manifest in the traditional, you'll wreck your knees, you'll freeze your lungs, or you'll give yourself a heart attack comments. Or you may get the more insidious passive-aggressive strategies, like making sure you have to choose between your favorite meal and a workout, or proactively setting up conflicts between what you're trying to do in the family. Oh, you have a long run Sunday? Well, little Jimmy has a horse riding appointment, but I understand if you don't have time. It's worth some investment in the beginning to take the temperature of your family and, and your workmates, and the people close to you to make sure you know where they stand and to let them know that what you're doing, you're running, is not a comment on their lifestyle. It's something you choose to do. Secondly, find some like-minded runners. Find a team. The second more direct support system that you should seek out is co-conspirators and mentors. These don't have to be coaches, but they can be. The best place to find these fellow running enthusiasts are at your local running club or in one of the online running forums. And be careful who you choose to run with initially, because you need to find folks who match your current capabilities. When you're just starting, it can be a bit off-putting to show up for a group run and be hammered by the veterans. They're not being mean to you on purpose. It's just where they're at and their capabilities, and it's not fun for them to break their routine for you. But spend time with those veterans because they have a lot of knowledge to drop about training and racing. Their enthusiasm and anything is possible attitude will help you along your journey. Misery loves company, so be wary if they start trying to talk you into races or vets that you're not quite ready for yet. That's a red flag. Third team building point is to find a good massage therapist or physical therapist or someone in that line of work. At some point, your body will start to break down and you'll get aches and pains. And chances are there's nothing really serious wrong with you, but since you're new, you won't know the difference. You won't know what, what is good and what is bad and, and what pain should be paid attention to. A good massage therapist will be able to reach into your body with their fingers and diagnose the problem. And it's not just about making you feel better. It's about telling you specifically what bits are out of of whack and why they should be able to show you pictures of that tendon or muscle or bone and how it works and this is important because you can visualize the mechanics of your own body and learn how to work with that and adjust it and i personally never had much luck with physical therapists but i know the good ones they are the same way they know how the body works and they can show you how to move in such a way as to support your running and to improve And the other thing about these professionals is that some of them have that actual healing touch that goes beyond the mechanical. And when you make a connection with a good therapist, the two of you essentially join in that healing process. And it's a powerful and helpful relationship. The next thing would be uh, various sports medicine practitioners or doctors. Uh, In today's world of specialization... You may need any number of doctors for different parts of your body, different systems. Uh, Knee specialists don't do ankles. Take the time, though, and be very careful when selecting your caregivers. Most general practitioners, and I'm generalizing here, but most doctors will tell you, they'll take the short and easy answer. They'll tell you to stop running, give you some anti-inflammatory pills. You want a specialist. You want somebody who cares enough, who's used to treating athletes, who understands the needs, the wants, and dreams of athletes. The traditional doctor training is to fix you. You want more than that. You want to know how you got broken in the first place and how to change your approach to prevent it in the future. And so if you go in and they want to give you pills and splints or other prophylaxis, that really just masks the symptoms, you want to shy away from that. You want to go deeper. It's your body. Take control of your medical care and get real answers. Don't let the medical bureaucracy bully you. The best way to find these caregivers, the good ones, the ones that, that work on runners, is to ask the other runners. And when the same name comes up more than once, you know you've found a potential keeper. The next thing you might want to start developing is a nutrition coach. I usually tell new runners not to try to diet at the same time they're trying to establish a running routine. It's just too much, too many moving pieces, too much stress. But as you start to feel your body and start to listen to your body, you start to think of food as fuel and how it affects your exercise and your running. And there's so much crazy misinformation around nutrition. It's hard to find a clear path through the junk pile. A nutrition coach can help you. Not one of the big diet companies. Not anyone who's selling meals or shakes or exercise programs. You want a person who's an athlete who understands nutrition and who is willing to help you. And you may have to pay them, but you may be able to find like-minded individuals who just want to share their journey. And the last thing, an important addition to your team, is a running coach. and Because once you get started, you'll need advice. There is lots of advice out there. Not all of it good. You can start with one of the many kind-hearted practitioners, many of whom would love an opportunity to mentor a new runner. Look for someone you can talk to, someone you can share openly with. The advantage of having a coach or even a sponsor is not so much that they will tell you what to do. The advantage is that you can gain a sounding board for your thoughts and concerns and doubts. They help you work through the challenges. They share your burden. As you become more advanced, you may set your goal on a race. And this is where a coach will shine. Very helpful. A good coach can assess your capabilities and come up with a training plan for you that fits your goals. The problem with pulling a plan from a book or a website is that the plan is an average plan. And you are not average. You are unique. The input and guidance of an actual concerned human in your running can make a big difference. So that's your A-team. And the time to start looking for and building this support team is when you start. If you wait until you need them, it's too late and you're going to lose some time. Get ahead of the curve, and you may be able to save yourself many uncomfortable misadventures. And now for our featured interview, because we can always learn something new from others. And some people are super interesting. Give us the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do there, Gary. Oh, Who I am and what I do? Wow, that's a, that's a
1: good one. I'm uh, Gary Allen, and I uh, started running on a little main island uh, called Great Cranberry Island when I was a kid, and um, it's probably not the best place to become a uh, distance runner because the main road is only two miles long. And I uh, slowly and steadily built up as a runner and uh, really liked it. I was immediately influenced by uh, Frank Shorter, who really planted the seed when i saw him win that gold medal in, in munich i thought well heck you can win a medal just for running and and that sort of sets the gears to going and i haven't really stopped over the years i've run quite a few marathons i don't think i am i know i am i'm not, i just finished uh my uh 98th marathon at boston um 98th career marathon of which did, um, did you
0: didn't you do something like, um, sub three and four decades or something that you were talking about? Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Over the years, I've run quite a few uh, sub three hour marathons.
0: I've, I've actually
1: logged 68 career sub three hour marathons and, I, and it's kind of a fun statistic and it was started by our good friend, Ambie Burfoot, who won the 1968 Boston Marathon, finding runners who have run sub three hour marathons in five consecutive decades and, and I happen to be on that list with a lot of other really notable runners. So that's really kind of fun to, to be there. And there's another runner from Maine uh, who happens to be the only woman on that list, and that's Joan Benoit Samuelson. So, so it's kind of fun to indirectly
0: um, bump elbows with Joni always. Yeah, and you're the race director of one of the, uh, the prettier marathons in the world, the uh, Mount Desert Island.
1: Yeah, the Mount Desert Island Marathon, again, was started by one of those light bulb moments. I was running in the 1980 New York City Marathon and sort of watching Fred LeBeau wave his arms uh, around uh, like a madman, like, you know. And I thought, wow, it'd be really pretty good to start a marathon in Maine. And and then we were off, and and that vision sort of stayed with me from 1980 onward. So it took, you know, 22 years to finally get it underway. But we did, and and we have a great um, destination marathon now here on Mount Desert Island, um, home to Bar Harbor and Acadia National Park, et cetera.
0: Yeah, beautiful place. Used to be yeah. the uh, the playground of the East Coast rich and famous uh, in the summertime because there was a uh, railroad they built that went up to Mount MDI and a bunch of rich and famous people lived up there. And that's correct. Yeah. yeah. I think yep. that's
1: so. A big Philadelphia Wealthy people at the time in New York and Boston, you know, came up here to to, uh, rusticate is what they called it, Uh, to come rusticate on MDI. So, yeah. I don't think I've been on Great Cranberry Island. I ran the Peaks Island five-miler once. Is that nearby? Peaks Island's down off Portland. Um, So we're about three, you know, three and a half miles uh, north of that. So three and a half hours by road, by water, kind of a straight line across the, you know, Gulf of Maine a little bit up here. It's really it's nice, like, nice place. That's like real Maine. It's up there. It's, it's very real, very real. So we're putting on a uh, marathon out there on Saturday. Over the years, we've played host to quite a few uh, pretty epic running events. Back in the we started in the '70s, and it had only a short run and went into the '80s. We put on a uh, 5K out there, the Great Cranberry Island 5K. It was perhaps arguably the only entry lottery in running. We had so many runners that wanted to run it and such a small island that we created a paper lottery because there was no such thing as, as, the, as the Internet then. So we created a lottery to let people in and, and that eventually worked its way up to being one of the 25 best races in the country, according to Runner's World. Still only have two miles worth of
0: road to work with there.
1: We're looking at two miles worth of road and runners seem to really want to flock to it. And then after many years of not having races out there, we started a um, ultra marathon out there, which we held that for seven years. And our final year was in 2013. And we were awarded the RRCA um, National Ultra Marathon Championships. So, bid runners from all over come out to to run that event. And we kind of thought, well, heck, we're the national championship. Maybe we should go out on top and call this the one. And... It's kind of like, you know, why would, why would you cancel a race that's more popular than ever? And we felt like, you know, it was, we felt like it was doing the race justice to end it at the peak of its life. We ended it with the national championships and, and put on a heck of a race. And that was in 2013. And we did leave open the door to bring something back. And so the next event on Cranberry is called the great run. It's going to be a marathon or a six-hour ultra, or a six-hour team relay. I mean, it's a Boston qualifier, and
0: we're pretty excited to, you know, have a full-fledged marathon out on the island. Explain this to me. Is it like a loop road that goes around the island, or does it go back you know, and forth? It's not.
1: It's a It's a back-and-forth race, which sounds, a lot of your listeners are going to listen to that and go, that would not be for me. But if you actually think about the formula of an out-and-back race, it's pretty cool because most races, we all line up and the faster runners are gone, and you don't see them again. And the runners in the middle of the pack are the middle pack people, and the runners at the end of the pack are the end pack people, and you're sort of with the crowd you're with. Whereas multiple out-and-backs makes every participant be able to see every other participant as well as lead changes, who the people you're chasing, who's chasing you, etc., etc. So if you think about a, like a 10,000-meter race on the track, well it's twenty you know twenty four plus laps. Well, that gets pretty monotonous, but what's happening is you can forget about where you're going and focus on just competing and so after a couple laps on clamber, I think runners stop with the sightseeing and and just compete, but also you like I said, you get to to watch the whole race unfold from from the leaders all to the back back of the pack people so almost everyone when they first come out call i don't know how this is going to seem most all go away saying
0: wow that was an amazing experience i know there's a lot of ultras that have that same sort of format you're not the only one where they have some small patch somewhere and do you know meter or uh i'm sorry kilometer loops or something like that right yeah yeah no
1: well yeah that formula for ultras really a lot of them are loops so you would be lapping people but the out and back format not as many of those but again with an island if you kept going in one direction long you're gonna you're gonna be swimming so um there are no real right loop roads on on the island but yeah most ultras in order you know if you get people running you know vast distances you don't want people spread all over tarnation and i think you 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 know someone disoriented or something like that you keep a better eye on them you know, honestly, I think that you're running long distances like that, there are no surprises if you're running the same terrain over and over again, you become very aware of where you are at all times, which is not a bad thing.
0: You've lived through this running boom from, you know, late 70s through today. It's amazing the change in our sport, isn't it?
1: Well, it is. I mean, I think back to the days of, you know, certainly paper applications to enter a race and, you know, going to the local races, and there was always a table full of paper apps and you'd You'd pick up the athletic series of races you would think about and see everything from... Uh, a friend actually shared on social media the other day that uh, he scanned in for the Yonkers Marathon and the entry fee was free. It didn't cost it any free. money to enter it free. Right, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and then it was crossed and it was $2 because the AAU, the Amateur Athletics Union of the time, insisted that they charged... Two dollars. So, so yeah, I've seen it go from either being free um, because we we were the show then. I mean, it, it it wasn't like you had to pay to be in. I mean, the you know race organizers wanted the runners to come and then the you know, spectators to spectate because we were the show. Now you have to pay to put on a show. You've got you know people running in costumes and all the various you know stuff that happened in a race. The money end of it is, is strange, but. All the gadgets people have now—I mean, there was no such thing as running gear when I first started running. You adapted everyday clothing to—you'd to, you, find something made out of material that you thought would be good to run in. Or, uh, right? You know, when I first started running, there weren't even really running shoes. So, and—and and we're not talking years and years ago. This was,
0: you know, this was the '70s. You know yeah, I remember my,
1: when the, Nike, Nike first yep. started. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I had those first um Nike uh Nike trainers waffles in uh in high school running cross country. Yeah. Yeah, we all those, did. Those those we were the did. only shoes yeah. you could get, you know. Yeah. Um yeah. but um the other big thing is just the number of people involved in the in the couple of uh, running booms. You know, you talk about running the New York City Marathon in 1980, what was there, you know, 2,000 people in the race?
1: I think there was probably, you know, 4 or 5. I that's a good question, but you know, it, it was it was out, you know, it was out of the park then, so they they went out of the park in 1976, so it had been on the city streets four years then. So it was getting pretty big. I could certainly look it up. You know, it's nothing like now. I mean, last year at New York, what were there, forty, fifty thousand 50,000 people? That's the population of the biggest city in Maine, everyone right. running. You know? <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've really seen it change, and it's fun. I mean, you certainly remember the days of being out, you know, running and, and having people look at you like, what is, what's the matter with you? Why are you, who who are you running from and why are you running? And now it's sort of like, it's, you know,
0: you see people running all the time everywhere. Yeah. So it's good. Yeah. It's much more mainstream and it's, it's a different uh, demographic too. It's not just runners. It's well, I mean, it's not just like racers per se, right? It's more of a lifestyle thing.
1: Well, I think so too. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think that the, the sport, you know, I was looking at a photograph again on social media. Talk about a powerful tool. I mean, before we would find a little faded newspaper clipping and we would hear Bill Rogers is running 140 miles a week, and we would all like roll up our sleeves and say, "Well, then we need to do that." You know, we, you know, you would hinge on you. You would just be so starved for information about running, you would find some little tidbit somewhere, and you would you would just go with it. So. Now, yeah, the accessibility is, is amazing and, and I think that information is amazing. And, um, anyway, I was looking at a, a picture of the 1970, early 70s Boston Marathon and it was when it finished on Ring Road right there by the Prue then. And there were runners lined up probably close to, you know, 50 yards away from line patiently waiting to cross the finish line because the finish line backed up. People couldn't get across the finish line. There were no chips, and so they had to wait to manually record runners. And these, and then I actually found the corresponding race results, and the runners that were lined up waiting to finish were three. One of the bib numbers was plainly visible. You can see his result, and his finish time was 3.03. So three-hour marathoners were a dime a dozen and and literally lined up waiting to finish and with the precious seconds clicking away so the times have really changed there were no space blankets there were no finisher medals unless you were maybe in the top 10 um or, yeah. or sometimes yeah, yeah, the yeah. podium
0: there were no Hands yeah, every I mile was, yeah yeah i was telling you i ran a uh a half marathon on uh on sunday and of course, right. when you come through a shoot, and then they put a medal on you, I'm like, medal. <laughs> right. And right. I actually said, when I was a boy, <laughs> well, I know we didn't have half yep. odds or
1: medals. We didn't have that. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, running history, running history to me is just fascinating. And one of the fun facts about being a a Mainer and y- you know, you mentioned, you know, uh, Ben True winning the the BAA 5K, and he just won the. Um, Diamond League uh, 5000 down in New York City, a great race. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's uh, amazing to see, you know, a main native, you know, taking it to those guys. So Ben's the real deal. But there's a lot of running history in this state, and you feel it. And, and one of the my favorite, but in the 1908 uh, London Olympic Games, is when the Queen decided that the marathon must finish over on this side of the track where the Royal Box was, and that distance just happened to be From Windsor Castle to there, 26 miles, 385 yards, because it was scheduled to finish on the opposite side of the track, which would have shortened it, Um, but she wanted to finish over where she was, and and honestly, what the Queen wants is what the Queen gets, right? So that sort of started this whole thing in motion, but only weeks later, in 1908, there was a... Maine held its first marathon in Rockland, and we dug up some old clippings and so forth from that found out that the distance for that marathon literally weeks after the queen declared that the marathon shall be 26 miles, 385 yards, that this distance was 28-ish miles. And so it made me laugh because Mainers are known to be kind of stubborn and kind of independent and very outspoken. And I said, that's so Maine that the queen has decided that it's going to be A, and Maine are the mainers are just like, no, we we'll, we're gonna do it our way. And so it was actually longer the first marathon than um what what was decided at the Olympics. So that's a little bit
0: Well that that's another thing I think is funny these days is um people, you know, putting their uh their, their GPS results in and going, Oh, it was twenty six point eight, not twenty six point two, you know? I'm like, really? Well we well, were we were you know, always just guessing on the distance anyhow most of the time. Well
1: rounded up and and you know I I still do that. I you know, if I do you know, I have a gadget watch which I I don't really use that much because I actually can't make it work most of the time and and when it does work I don't really pay much attention to it. But you know, if I run ten miles and it's ten and a half miles, it's ten miles. I don't you know, I don't care about the other half. You know. Because what you do in training isn't what counts anyway. Race day is when it counts. But, you know, as you were saying back in the old days, you know, a race often was over very logical terrain. I mean, the Falmouth Road Race is coming up this summer, you know, and they've been doing that forever. And it literally was started by Tommy Leonard from a pub to a pub. And the distance happened to be 7.1 miles. And they still compete that distance. And so... You certainly remember, and I definitely remember. You know, a lot of races were random distances that just made sense. Like let's race right. from here to here, and and it wasn't really about you know having an exact standardized distance.
0: It was just you know a race. So it was just a race, um, yeah. And and it was, and a lot yeah. of them started at pubs. You know, we had a lot of yep, it was a big definitely. tie in between between pubs and uh, and the local racing scene. We have a race that my club does called the Wapak Trail Race, which uh we always thought was seventeen and a half miles till GPS was invented. Then we realized it was closer to eighteen. Perfect. Keep
1: yeah. Keep it at se keep it at seventeen and a half until people it's it's like a baker's dozen. You get an extra you get an extra donut in there. Getting,
0: yeah, you get extra half mile for your trouble. Um so yeah, for speaking bubble. of the, the WAPAC, um that's an extension of the ATK. You said Scott Jurek is, is running the ATK right now? He is. I think Scott's in Virginia somewhere, and I was
1: just looking online and he's um a record attempt. Current record is forty. 40- have uh, 47 days and a few hours, and and so Scott's going after the record, and I I see from reports he's right at record pace. So, you know he's got a lot of terrain ahead of him. My hope is when he gets to Maine, I might be able to meet up with him for a few miles. Certainly got a lot of terrain to cover before he gets here, but uh, and we're all sort of watching him bang out 50 mile days, you know, like clockwork. So it'll be be pretty, pretty interesting to um, watch him as he progresses
0: northward. That's not an easy course either for running. There's a lot of elevation well, gain and loss. Yeah. You're you're well, basically yeah. running the spine of like three mountain ranges. If you Google the Appalachian Trail and look at
1: that, it goes up over the summit of Mount Washington and Mount Adams and Mount Jefferson and all those big mountains in the Whites and and when it gets into Maine, you know, there's uh you know just incredibly tough isolated terrain and. Um, you know there's there's uh, stretches of it where you're just in the middle of nowhere and your support crews can't get get you at all so yeah he's got he's got some miles to go for sure,
0: sure. that'll be interesting to see if he breaks the record that's that's uh like you said that's some pretty gnarly uh running when you get up in the main some of that's kind of well you know if anybody on un, un, uh unimproved trails as they say
1: yeah, I know you know that I did a couple of journey runs. I ran from uh, here on Mount Desert Island, Cadillac Mountain, to uh, Washington D.C., which was 700 miles. I did that in 14 days, so I was doing 50 miles a day. You know, that was on very improved roads. I mean, that you know, I had nice, smooth roads to run on, and it was it was winter, so that made it a little hard. But I can't imagine running the Appalachian Trail.
0: Yeah, that's got to be. You know, he's he's going to have to start putting in 10, 12-hour days. When he gets towards the end to to break the record, so good for him.
1: Well, yeah, we'll see I, he I, think he'll probably, I think he's on the trail that long now. I think he might be on the trail longer than that now. Yeah, well,
0: that's uh, it. Sounds slow, but on those trails, it's it's uh, it's not slow. Not day after day after day. What do you see in the future for our sports? You know, there's a lot of grumbling about you know, races aren't really races anymore. They're color runs and.
1: Yeah, the the color runs and the tough mudder run, you know, mud puddle runs, those kind of runs. You know, certainly I agree it's better that people are in motion, and and if those events are getting people in motion, so be yeah. it. But I hope that you know there isn't a more and more and more of that kind of thing, and that people actually still, when they pin on a bib number, treat it like a race and want to go out there and and run hard. You know, I, I've been speaking at quite a few marathons. I, I spoke at the uh, Pittsburgh Marathon um, recently and and again at the uh, Sugarloaf Marathon here in Maine. You know, one of the things that I really stress to people is that, you know, it still is a race. And, you know, if you go out there and train and throw the basic ingredients of, of running into your mix, you don't necessarily need to get all caught up in a training program. And, you know, if you read all the different people's philosophies on training everybody's saying the same thing anyway it's just sometimes packaged differently but if you just go out there and train and work hard consistently and still treat it like a race you're going to really get to see what your potential is and, and if you want to go out there and have a dance party that's cool too but you know still still honor, honor you know the Boston Marathon which Boston doesn't have that problem but you know people still do compete you know Heavily there, but go out and you know honor the race with your best effort. Don't just go finish. That's
0: one of the things I like to share with people. What have you learned from doing this for fifty years, Gary?
1: Well, I've learned for myself that you know there, you know it's an often used cliche, but there really are no limits. Uh, I'm not really feeling like I'm going to slow down any because I never really was fast in the first place. So I'm just holding steady, and I, you know, I I work hard at it. I sort of I love the feeling of um, leaning into a hill and grinding, grinding up up, and I love the you know sort of sore feeling you get after a good solid effort. And and I've learned to you know you need to put some effort into things to get something out of things. And you know, think running isn't really particularly easy. That's you know what makes it so fun.
0: Yeah, I think the future's future's bright in terms of it's you know it's it's a global sport now, but you know I think there's still still a lot of quality people in the sport uh it's not you know certainly not not corrupted like other major sports yet
1: well no i don't see doom and gloom at all for running i see it continuing to grow and continuing to improve and an excited audience is a good audience and you know where else is is somebody my age going to have something in common with 20 somethings or younger it's a very uh, understandable and common language you know if you're running it's uh, easy to understand and I th- yeah, I think the future is very bright. And, you know, I, I know right now there's a lot of allegations going around with, you know, air- doping scandals and, and that kind of stuff. And th- that's just too bad. I hope uh, as more things come out about the whole Nike Oregon project thing that none of the allegations amount to anything. And because I, I think that just hurts hurts everybody, you know, if those, if any of that stuff is, is true. So... Um, you know, although it hurts, it's not going to,
0: it's not going to kill the sport for sure. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I'll let you get back to work. Good luck with your races this year. Okay.
1: Well, nice talking to you. All right. Cheers. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Yep. Bye.
0: Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Happy Is the new healthy? With an exclamation point. Attitude apparently is a state of mind. The Amazon Kindle store is always trying to push books on me. They know I'm an addict. They are like drug dealers. On the corner, whispering sweet offers from the shadows every time I check my email. Psst, hey Chris, we noticed you like science fiction. How about these three books that are only 99 cents? You know you want them. What? You don't have time to read three more books? But it's only 99 cents. Come on, you know you want to. And so it was that I found myself with the book Happy is the New Healthy, 31 Ways to Relax, Let Go, and Enjoy Life Now by Dave Romanelli. It seemed innocuous enough. Dave, it seems, is some sort of funny, neurotic, blog-writing yoga instructor who I think would either be really entertaining or totally annoying to be trapped next to on a plane. The book seems to be a collection of 31 blog posts or individual life lessons on how to stay happy and not lose it in the crazy world that we live in. And some are better than others, and there isn't much of a through line. There's no real story arc, more of a loose collection of thoughts. If you're looking for a methodology or a step-by-step program to get happy and healthy... Yeah, this isn't going to do it for you. If you're looking for some funny and randomly muse-tickling vignettes, it's just fine. Here are some nuggets I pulled out. Quote, There are so many people with talent, and so few with real tenacity. This is a sentiment that has proven to be true over and over in my life, and more true as we go on in life. When you get to the top of the game, you'll find two types of people. Truly talented people and people who are willing to work hard and push through. And when you find someone who has both, those are the real standouts. And the lesson for me is not to overthink which direction to go, but just go and push through. And you may not get where you're going, but you'll get somewhere and you'll be richer for it. Quote, as Douglas MacArthur said, Youth is not entirely a time of life. It is a state of mind. It is not wholly a matter of ripe cheeks, red lips, or supple knees. It is a temper of the will, a quality of the imagination, a vigor of the emotions. And much of what I enjoyed in reading this book were the quotes that Dave pulled out and salted through the work. We all think about age in this case, some of us more than others. I heard a scientist this week who said we reach the peak of our mental abilities at age 23, but aging like so many other things seems to involve some choice you can choose to age well and use the new gifts you've accumulated over the years you can choose to retain the attitude of youth and a key to this is to always be planning for a brighter tomorrow and expecting it because this in turn influences how you feel both mentally and physically so yes you can choose to age or not Quote, the American actor James Barrymore said, you don't age until your regrets outnumber your dreams. And this speaks to another point, to the happiness of the moment, that is a common theme in Dave's philosophy. When you get to the point in your life you're regretting things you've done or not done, you, you are robbing yourself of your future. You are choosing to be made miserable by regrets. You're letting the regret outweigh the happiness of that current moment and the brightness of the future. You need to reweight your scale. Quote, while the increased connectivity, access to all those articles, and constant communication with others can be a good thing, especially for business, too much technology creates absence. Absence of time, absence of sensation, absence of peace. The antidote to absence is presence. It's the feeling you have after a long, sweet nap, or when eating comfort food on a dark, cold night, or when taking a break at one eleven. And I'm not sure I buy the argument that technology is killing our awareness, but I do think we need to proactively find the presence in our lives. Much like anything important, that peaceful, introspective, healing moment, whether alone or with loved ones, needs to be scheduled and stewarded so its power is not forgotten. Or, as to quote Dave, later in the book, to the mind that is still, the whole universe surrenders. La zoo. Quote, Soren Kierkegaard said, The function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. Yeah. So when you pray or meditate or any other quiet, thoughtful stewardship of your mind, it's not to change something external. It's to change yourself. Be the change you want to see in the world and start with your thoughts. Quote, In the fight between you and the universe, I'll back the universe, Frank Zappa. The universe, fate, God, whatever you want to call it, it's always talking to you. It's trying to send us messages. Or maybe it's just some deeper part of us trying to be helpful Either way, it's a mistake to ignore the messages. And as uh, Dave says later in the book, a wise person said that first the universe will throw a pebble. And if you don't listen, then the universe will throw a rock. And if you still don't listen, then it will throw a brick wall. Quote Take a moment to sit with the following questions How do you want to be remembered? Whose life have you impacted deeply? Have you shared your secrets and gifts with another who can continue your legacy? Have you dared to dream your greatest dream? If you could be present at your own funeral, what eulogy would you hope to hear? One of the things 98% of the people who walk by in this world are thinking is, what the hell is my purpose in life? Why am I here? And these are some great questions, These, these questions that we just listed above to take with you to a quiet place with your favorite notebook and do some good work on your life and yourself. Quote, Let there be no doubt, you have a spectacular gift. You're a unique genius to share with the world. And the second thing that 98% of the people you walk by are thinking is, what the hell do I have to offer? I'm not special. I've got nothing unique. Well, that's wrong. Everyone has a gift. You have a gift. Everyone is uniquely something. Don't hide your gift. Who are you to think that you have the right to keep your gift from us? Share it with the world. Quote, If there is one important lesson I have learned in business, wellness, and life, it is this. Do not get caught in the middle. People caught in the middle are mired in mediocrity. The sort of try and sort of don't try... They sort of pay attention to their kids and sort of don't. They sort of believe and sort of don't. Such behavior suggests a life half-lived. If you're going to celebrate, then celebrate. Take the moment by storm. Savor the chocolate. Hug with your body, not your hands. And connect on the high five. So part of Dave's whole zeitgeist is to enjoy the moment. And I have to agree. If you're going to do something, go all in. Make it count. Don't walk away with regrets that you could have done something with more vigor and enthusiasm. And if you don't have that vigor and enthusiasm or can't summon it, then then do something else. Quote, If it feels like life is passing you by, then let it go. Why walk in someone else's footsteps when you can walk down your own awesome path? The Grateful Dead sing it perfectly in the song Ripple. There is a road, no simple highway. Between the dawn and the dark of night. And if you go, no one may follow. That path is for your steps alone. You like my singing? I bet you do. Just like you have your unique gift to share. You have your own unique path to walk. Stop worrying about why your path is different or crooked and start enjoying the walk. Quote, There is more to life than that. When we are defined by our routines, we deny the universe opportunities to reach us. But when we break free of our routines, we are ripe for revelation. Now, this is a trap that I fall into. I tend to want to optimize and routinize all aspects of my life so I can live with efficiency and get more stuff done. But those routines come with the risk of sleepwalking through life with the proverbial blinders on. You can miss opportunities and side paths to something unplanned but wonderful. Because at the end of the day, you're just walking towards death, and you probably shouldn't hurry. As Dave says, adopt the pace of nature. Quote, With the inhale, I am strong. With the exhale, I am free. I like the feel of this as a meditation mantra. So, you know, join me. Close your eyes, breathe, and say... With the inhale, I am strong. With the exhale, I am free. Yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? Quote, Here we all are, souls in spacesuits wandering the earth. Again, we are only on this planet for a brief time. We are spirits and souls and life essence beyond the physical. And I really like the visual that Dave creates here of us just being souls in spacesuits briefly wandering on this rock. So make good use of your time. Don't waste it being miserable. And to finish things off, Dave talks about the fact that we are more than just one person. We have the potential within us to manifest as different selves. But one of these selves is our higher self, the best happy and fulfilled version and manifestation of our self. This is the version of our self that we need to find and put in charge of our life. And he tells us like a coach, it's time for a coup. Take a moment to name your highest self and anoint him her as president of your life. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, that's it. The terminus of episode 4-315 of the Run Run Live podcast. Those who arrive have survived. One quick, technical note at one point sometime in the past when i created a new version of run run live a second instance of the podcast feed got added to itunes so if you search on itunes for run run live you might find two shows pop up and they're they're the same feed so i'm going to ask apple to eliminate one of them so if you find that the podcast disappears or you're not getting fortnightly updates go into iTunes and search again and subscribe to the other feed. Like I said, I bought a new mountain bike for my daughter, and last Sunday we went out for a ride. And I know all the trails around my house for miles, and I decided to take one that cuts behind the old local uh, ski hill. It's an old farm road in the woods that runs down and behind one of the tubing hills. And I'm flying down this hill, and I look up, and there's a rope across the trail about three feet off the ground. And I do some split-second calculus and decide that the best thing to do is to lay the bike down on its side and try to slide under this rope. But my intentions did not translate well as I bounced my noggin off the trail. You know, it's one of those things where you visualize it, but it just doesn't happen that way. And uh, I was was out of it. I had no idea where I was for a few minutes. I gave myself a nice concussion. Turns out I broke my helmet, too. And I, you know, I had to take it easy for a couple of days because I had that uh, that bad headache. Um, and I kind of kept an eye on myself. Stopped taking the blood thinners because I thought that would be a bad idea with a brain bruise. And it seems like what happened was they are running some sort of trail race over behind the ski area and had roped off the course. And uh, I started to, I talked about this on on social media. I started to get a lot of comments that maybe I should stay out of the treated trails. <laughs> But, you know, you can't run scared, right? You can't live scared. You take the precautions you can. You wear a helmet. You don't do anything stupid, but you can't hide under a rock, right? So also remember, I'm looking for help with my Hood to Coast run still at the end of August. I'm running to support cancer research because cancer sucks. And I'll tell you what I'll do. I got an, I got, a, I got a deal for you. I got a deal for you. Such a deal I got for you got sent to me a nice Team Hoyt running jacket, a black one. I'll put a picture in the in the post from the Hoyts to thank me for what I did for them in the spring. And it's a large, so, you know, it, it'll fit anybody. <laughs> it's still in the wrapper, factory sealed, pristine. Let's say that the first person... No, let's do it this way. Let's say the biggest donation of, let's say, over 50 bucks to my cancer fund for Hood to Coast... In the next thirty days, gets the jacket. I'll mail it to you, and you can you can wear that. Because frankly, I got I got enough stuff. <laughs> uh, and the uh, the links to how to do that are in the show notes and in, in the post. Now, I've got a great trip planned. I'm going to fly into Rapid City, South Dakota, and drive west over the divide to Portland. And I've got the flights and the hotels and the cars booked. It's going to be a hoot! A hoot! I'm taking my wife with me to give her something new to complain about. And anyone that lives along the course, along that route from, you know, draw a line through Yellowstone from South Dakota to Portland, you live around there, you want to catch a run or have dinner or have coffee, let me know. It's going to be a hoot. And uh, you folks also, you folks remember Bruce Van Horn from a couple episodes ago. So I just wanted to let you know, he launched a new book called Worry No More, and he's offering it right now pre-release on the Kindle for $0.99. So if you like his uh, stuff, that's a great deal. And it helps him, too, because it drives his pre-release numbers up. So what else? I'm training away. And my next race is that Olympic distance triathlon up in Winchington, Mass., and I feel pretty good about it. I've gotten a couple swims in in the open water of over a mile and felt fine. As long as they let me wear my wetsuit, I'll be golden. I've, I bought this wetsuit. This is a real, I think it's an Xterra tri-suit. I bought it a couple years ago when I was entertaining doing an Ironman. And I hadn't really used it much because my foot healed. And I switched back to marathon racing before, before the, uh, the ice melted on the open water up here. So I'm using it now in the open water, and oh my goodness, it's like having the swim cheat code. It holds you in a nice, balanced position so you can swim straight and easy without any struggle at all. It's a wonderful technology. And after that, I haven't signed up yet, but I'm leaning towards riding the Hampshire 100 again. I have to do some work on my 29er, replace some spokes and stuff, and learn how to not crash so much. (laughs) But it's a good challenge, and my bike legs are coming back, so I think I'll do that. And the one race I'm really looking forward to is the WAPAC trail race on September 6th. This is one of my old all-time favorites. It's a hard race. It's 18 miles of mountain technical trails, not for the 5K crowd. But you, if you can run a marathon, you can run the WAPAC. I mean, if you run a half marathon, you can run the WAPAC. And you will not find any other races like this one, or at least not many others. It's unique. Uh, consider it. Try something new. Have an adventure. Come run in the mountains with me. I'll put the links in the, uh, in the show notes. I've got two interviews recorded for the next two shows. One is with Matt from Manchester, England, who created a graphic novel around the Steve Prefontaine story. And the other, and the other is with Tim, who used my Marathon BQ plan this spring to qualify for Boston, which is kind of cool. So Buddy is sitting in the front yard barking at me through the door as I write this, and he wants me to come outside and play. He's old now, and his hips bother him. I don't take him on long, long runs or on the road, but we still get out in the woods for shorter stuff. He loves it. He loves to explore the woods and sniff everything and wallow in the mud holes, even if it's only two or three miles. He's been a good running partner and a good friend over the last decade, and I'm going to miss him when he's gone. It's going to be hard to celebrate the big part he played in my life without feeling the loss and the empty space that he leaves. And I remember the time quite clearly that he and I and Brian did a did a long run on the Wapak Trail, 20-plus miles it must have been, you know, two, three, four hours in the mountains, and we all had so much fun. And I can just picture the way he used to fly through the air to catch a Frisbee. I'm gonna I'm gonna take him for a walk now because he's my brother and he deserves a moment no matter how busy I am and as you are walking your dog I'll see you out there and then he thought that he just couldn't die so
1: ned he laughed so hard it made him cry
0: And he loves it. He loves to explore the woods and sniff everything. And he's still there. There he is. There he is. Hey, shut the up. There's people walking in the woods. Hey, hey, I'm talking about you. Be quiet. Come over here. Let me pet you.